0: And we are going to be going to Genesis chapter 3 in a moment. Genesis chapter 3. And so if you want to turn there while I set up the passage and uh, begin with some opening words. I want to take time to thank Cheryl who's been signing it for us. Thank you very much. And you know, oftentimes we never think of the people on sound or audiovisual and Steve and I always te- tease Ken back there, but I appreciate Ken's work back there in the back, uh, especially on days like today when technology is just not working right. And a lot of times we blame the, the guy on the soundboard or the guy on the computer when the words aren't right. And truly, it's, today it's not his fault. Any other day maybe, but not today. Um, so turn to Genesis 3 here. You know, we're going to start talking about the second part about a biblical worldview. So a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Over the last two weeks, we talked about creation. And if you recall, and hopefully you do, we talked about how God created everything and God created it good. God is the creator and God created everything good. And... Three weeks ago, actually, we began this series, and I challenge you to be a culture warrior. The culture is affecting us more than we realize. OK, so be a culture warrior. Test everything. Remember, First Thessalonians 5.22, I think it is. Test everything. Cling to the good. Pray continually. Every form of media, every form of music, every form of television, which is a form of media, by the way. Every form video game, every newspaper, every teacher, everything. Every person has a worldview and we are all affecting each other. And mass media is definitely affecting us. And so we have to go back to the Bible and go back to it and think, what worldview is that form teaching us? Uh, we were watching this show yesterday with my kids, it was on PBS or some channel, and it's talking about, it's a, it's a science and history show for kids, and it was on around noon, I don't know what it was, it was pretty interesting, except they start talking about billions and trillions of years, and Mercedes was quick to say, that's the worldview, and and I told her, yes, that is a worldview, and that does not match up with the biblical worldview. Does not match up with the biblical worldview. So we've got to test everything. So today we begin talking about creation as fallen. What is wrong with the world? The world is fallen. The world is depraved. The world is corrupted by sin. Chuck Colson shares the following. What does the face of evil look like? What does the face of evil look like? He says, a few years ago when I visited a South Carolina women's prison. Now, if you know, Chuck Colson began prison fellowship ministries, and so they would do a lot of ministries in women's and men's prisons. And so he says, I went to a South Carolina women's prison. And he said, I learned that Susan Smith, he was going there, and he learned that Susan Smith has signed up to hear me speak. Smith is a woman who drowned her two small sons by letting her car slide into a lake with the children still strapped in their car seats. Maybe some of you remember that. Tragic. Her reason? She felt that the man she was dating had hinted that the children were obstacles. Obstacles to marrying her. He says, as I prepared to speak that day, I scanned the audience wondering what this unnatural mother would look like. I imagined some kind of female Dorian Gray, her face marked by the sole struggle she had waged with evil. Recalling photos from the newspaper, I searched for her face, but I couldn't pick her out. After the meeting, I asked a local prison fellowship director whether Smith had even attended. Oh, sure, he replied. She was in the front row, staring at you the whole time. Chuck Coulson finishes that little story saying, The face of evil is frighteningly ordinary. In Jonesboro, Arkansas, an 11- and a 13-year-old pull the school fire alarm, assume sniper positions, and then shoot at students and teachers as they file out of the school. They kill four students and one teacher, wounding 11 others. In Oakland, California, a teenager with a knife chases a woman down the street while a crowd gathers and chants, killer, killer, like spectators at a sporting event. Someone in the crowd finally trips the frightened woman, giving her assailant a chance to stab her to death. In Dartmouth, Massachusetts, three boys surround a ninth-grade classmate and stab him to death. Afterward, they laugh and trade high fives like like basketball players celebrating a slam dunk. In New Jersey, Brian Peterson takes his girlfriend, Amy Grosberg, across the state line to a Delaware hotel room where she gives birth. They kill the newborn and dump them in the trash. Killers with freckled faces. Killers on the playground. Killers who do it for sport. What is wrong with the world? Chuck Colson is writing about those cases in a section of his book, writing about the sin problem. The sin problem. Of course, those are dramatic examples, but we do see evidence of sin all around us, don't we? What do we think of these riots that have been going on across the United States? What do we think currently of a police officer who who murders someone they are trying to arrest? And it was murder, and it was wrong, and nobody denies that. Now, at the same time, was the victim or the victims of the police officers when they're in wrong, does that make the victims innocent? Does that make the victims saints? What is the right spot response? What is the right response? Do we need the police? Do we need government? I went into this sermon series because I see all around us right now across the United States of America and certainly across Europe, especially Europe and the United United States of America, I see a world that has lost the Judeo-Christian values and they have nothing to replace them with. They have a worldview, but their worldview does not have the ability to talk about right and wrong. It's not founded in the Bible anymore. Not all of America's founders were Christians. A lot of them were, but not all of them. But most all of them, probably all of them, even the non-Christians, thought the Bible was the best way to get our values. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible. We cut all the miracles out. Yet he thought, excuse me a minute, sorry. Yet, Thomas Jefferson thought the way to teach in school was to start with the Bible. He still thought we needed the values from the Bible. We are in a society that has lost a Judeo-Christian worldview, and we do not have anything to replace it with. Why do we need government? I share this comically, not politically. On August 12, 1986, President Reagan said, The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) How much government do we need? What is the primary job of the government? I believe from a biblical worldview, that means we get our values from the Bible. If we get our view of the world, our view of right and wrong from the Bible, I believe from a biblical worldview, the primary job of the government is to protect the people. That's their primary job, from a biblical worldview. And as Christians, we ought to go back to a biblical worldview. So we're in a sermon series about having a biblical worldview. Last week, we talked about how God created everything good. Today and next week, we are going to talk about how sin has impacted the world, creating total depravity. Sometimes called it Fallenness. If you go in your Bibles later on and you look up Genesis, um, I'm sorry, Romans 3, 1 through 23. Romans 3, 1 through 23. You will see how Paul belabors the point that the world is all corrupted. For all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God. By the way, there's fill in the blank form in your bulletin. And um, depravity and sin are two of your blanks right there. I'm not going to give you any more answers. It's all extra credit. So, I want to submit to you today that we need government and police and the military to keep us safe. But we need these right now because of sin, because the world is fallen, because the world is totally depraved. That's why we need them. I also want to submit to you that we cannot fix ourselves. And this is the biggest deal for today's sermon. We cannot fix ourselves. There is no utopian, ideal, government, or nonprofit group that can fix humanity. We need divine intervention. We need the help that can only come from God. We need divine help. People have tried. And they continue to think that government or nonprofits or psychology or science can fix humanity. I don't know, have you noticed that? For at least the last hundred years, probably the last five or six hundred years, since the Enlightenment began, since the Renaissance period began, since the Middle Ages began and we ended the the Renaissance period, ever since then, people have tried in many ways to think that they can fix society with government programs or or some utopian ideal or modern psychology or sociology or some other type of thinking. It won't work. We need divine help. Many people think the problem is a lack of education. That's just the problem. We just need to educate more people. I am all for education, but that is not the root problem. Many think the problem is poverty, or the problem is men, or the problem is something else. And when I say men, I mean they really do think the problem is men, okay? Or they think the problem is white people, or they think something else. Those aren't the real problems. Okay, right now in our political climate, you might hear the phrase critical race theory or intersectionality. That posits the belief that the more, um, okay, I'm going to give an example. If you're white and you're male and you are um, heterosexual, that means you are three times an oppressor. Okay, that's what the problem is. They believe the problem is whiteness and maleness and being heterosexual. In 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 like mind, if you're black and you're female and you're home, and you're a lesbian, that means you are oppressed three times. Okay, and you can read more about that. It gets very complicated as Marxist teaching, but that's what they think the problem is. Those aren't the problems. The problem goes back to the fall. And actually, if you take critical race theory and intersectionality to its extreme, then everybody is an oppressor and everybody is oppressed, and it, it just doesn't work. The problem is far deeper. The problem is far deeper. It goes back to Genesis 3. Chuck Colson shares the following. The denial of sin and responsibility is couched in therapeutic terms, such as the need to understand even the worst crimes as a result of a dysfunctional childhood or other circumstances. Symptoms of family breakdown, such as divorce, adultery, and abortion, are defended as expressions of the individual's freedom of choice. Social engineering schemes are dressed up as public compassion. But these are all window dressings, for beneath these explanations lies the same false utopian. It is the same worldview that gave rise to modern totalitarianism. As Glenn Tinder writes, much of the tragic folly of our times, not only in the part of extremists such as Linda, um, not, in, not only in the part of extremists such as Lenin, but also in the part of middle-of-the-road liberals and conservatives, would never have arisen had we not, in our technological and ideological pride, forgotten original sin. Do you see what he's saying? Much of the problems that we're dealing with, not only on the side of extremists such as Lenin or others, but also in the middle of the road, liberals and conservatives, much of our problems go back to the fact that we have denied original sin. We have denied that the ultimate problem is sin. The ultimate problem goes back to Genesis 3. Blaise Pascal shared the following, Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, original sin. And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Without this mystery of original sin, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The first and most fundamental element of any worldview is the way it answers the questions of origins. Where the universe came from and how human life began. The second element is the way it explains the divine dilemma. You hear that? The first and most important element of any worldview is origins. Where did life begin? Where did it all come from? The second most important element of any worldview is how it explains the human dilemma. Why is there war and suffering? Why is there disease and death? And the Bible answers all of these questions, and it all goes back to Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 is origins. God created time and space and matter. God created everything. Genesis 3 is the fall. Depravity. Let's read Genesis 3 17 through 24. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and this is when God gives consequences. Then to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Curses the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I also want to read Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole creation is groaning and suffering all because of sin. All because, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell with Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world And we need divine intervention to help us, to rescue us. Creation, God created everything good, Genesis 1 and 2. Fall, Genesis 3, the world is fallen. That's why we see pain and suffering and all that stuff. We just saw that in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when they sinned, that's when death entered the world. That's when sickness entered the world. That's when pain and suffering entered the world. If you read Genesis 4, that's when the first murder enters the world. We are redeemed right now. Jesus has redeemed us. He saved us from sin, but the world is not restored yet. That will happen eventually in Revelation 21 and 22. We live in a fallen world, and fallen humans cannot fix the problem. That's my theme. We live in a fallen world, and fallen humans cannot fix the problem. We need divine help. The world is is totally depraved and we cannot fix ourselves. Let's talk about Genesis 3 for just a moment. In Genesis 3, we see that sin entered the world. Again, in, in, in the past, this has been called total depravity. Because sin entered the world, we are totally depraved. We, we cannot get the solution on our own. We Jesus taught us that we won't even accept Him as Lord and Savior, except that the Holy Spirit draws us to Him. The Holy Spirit needs to open our eyes so that we understand we are sinners in need of a Savior. In Genesis 3, one through seven Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we often think about this and we think why did God put this tree in the garden of Eden and tell them not to eat of it but why don't we realize God told them they could eat of any other tree in the garden of Eden God told them I've given you every plant everything to enjoy but just don't eat from this one tree and we always focus on the one thing that we shouldn't do, don't we? Realize that God wanted to give us free will. Adam and Eve have free will, and they exercise that free will. We all, we all see the effects of sin, don't we? We see right here that God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 don't eat from that tree. Um, And because they did that, because they sinned, Eve first, then Adam, Adam will now work by the sweat of his brow. Eve will have pains in childbirth. And that was probably just the beginnings of the effects of sin, really. They are cast out of the Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden there was also the Tree of Life. And if they kept eating of the Tree of Life, they would keep living In a sinful state now we see the tree of life return in revelation chapter 21 and 22 and the tree of life will allow us to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth but because we adam first and now all of us have been cast out of the garden of eden we now have death we have death we have disease we have murder we have sin we have theft we have so much more i believe actually the world is getting worse not better the world is getting worse, not better. We are creating new ways to sin and new ways to harm people, aren't we? Just look at social media. That's a new way of bullying, a new way of harming people. Look at inter- the Internet, which, which has many, many good things. But sex trafficking, sex trafficking has uh, have used it in great and evil ways. We are in a world, though that denies sin, and that is a great problem. We are in a world that thinks that we can fix the problem on our own. They don't think the real problem with the world is sin. But from a biblical worldview, this is the real problem. Genesis 3, sin entering the world, this is the real problem. Chuck Colson writes the following. He says, but if the source of disorder and suffering is not sin, then where do these problems come from? Enlightenment thinkers concluded that they must be the product of the environment. ...of ignorance, of poverty, or other undesirable social conditions... ...and that all it takes to create an ideal society is to create a better environment... ...improve education, enhance economic conditions, and re-engineer social structures. Enlightenment thinkers would think, given the right conditions, human perfectibility has no limits. And so was born the modern utopian impulse... Do we see that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying to get people out of poverty. That's a good thing. Christians should be trying to help the poor. There's nothing wrong with educating people. That's a good thing. And Christians have always been um, proponents of education. In fact, if you study ancient Judaism, they were always more literate than the rest of the people. But that won't rescue us. That's not the real problem. That will not create a utopian ideal. Someone once quibbed that the doctrine of original sin... Is the only philosophy empirically validated by 35 centuries of recorded human history. Is that true? I mean, study history and we see the doctrine of human depravity. We see the doctrine of sin. They called the 20th century the Christian century. They thought it was going to be so great. We were going to have this utopia. And then World War I came. Trench warfare, mustard gas, things like that. Then the Holocaust came. I found a show on some channel, American Heroes channel, Apocalypse Stalin. You ever study Stalin and all the evil that came about? He killed something like 17 million people. It was horrible. Chuck Coulson continues, By contrast, the enlightened worldview has proven to be utterly irrational and unlivable. The denial of our sinful nature... The denial of our sinful nature and the utopian myth it breeds leads not to beneficial social experiments but to tyranny. The triumph of the Enlightenment worldview with its fundamental change in presuppositions about human nature was in many ways the defining event of the 20th century. Which explains why the history of this era is so tragically written in blood. The history of the last hundred years so tragically written in blood. As William Buckley trenchantly observes, utopianism inevitably brings on the death of liberty. Glenn Tinder writes, if one acknowledges no great unconquerable evils in human nature, then it seems possible to create a heaven right here on earth. But that doesn't match up with the biblical worldview. You hear what they're trying to do? They're trying to say there's no unconquerable evil in the human nature. There's no problem in humans bringing all, this, all the sin and death and destruction about. They're taking away original sin. So we as Christians must recognize that the world does not recognize our values. That's what I've been trying to preach on the last few weeks. The world does not recognize our values. From a biblical worldview, we can't fix ourselves. We need divine help. The problem all goes back to Genesis 3 and sin. The world does not think the problem is original sin. They may think we sin, but they may not realize that it all goes back to Genesis 3. They think that we can fix the problem on our own. And realize, I'm not saying that all government programs are bad. I'm just saying that we cannot fix, fix the problems. The government programs, try as they might, will not fix the alternate problem because we need divine intervention. We need help from Jesus. We need his, his death and resurrection for us to fix the problem. These utopian ideas do continue, though. Realize that when we think that humanity can fix a problem, that is what's called humanism. Humanism teaches that we just have to make the world a better place for humans, and, and they think that we can do it on our own. But 3,500 years of recorded history shows we can't do it on our own. As Dr. Phil would say, how's it working? It's not working. This has led to Marxist teaching and socialism teaching. Again, I'm not saying these things are all wrong. What I'm saying is that it does not address the fundamental, deep-rooted, real problem, which is original sin. I like what Chuck Colson shares here. He says, The fatal flaw in Marxism's utopian view of the state is once again the denial, the denial of the basic Christian teaching of the fall. If one is to believe there is such a thing as sin, one must believe there is a God who is the basis of a transcendent and universal standard of goodness. Now, listen to this. All of this Marx denied. For him, religion and morality were nothing but ideologies used to rationalize the economic interest of one class over another. Small wonder that the totalitarian states created by Marxism acknowledged no universal moral principles, no transcendent justice, and no moral limits on their murderous brutality. The party... The Marxist party, like the general will, was always right. They denied that there was original sin. They denied that that was the problem. But the problem in humanity all goes back to original sin. They all go back to the fall. These sin problems affect us, all of us too. I'm going to continue that next week. The, the problems of the fall, the problems of sin, the problems of depravity affect our thinking, which leads to the effect on our media on our government, on our schools, on our churches, and every other institution or group. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is untouched by sin and untouched by the fall. And that is why we need to test everything up against the Bible and we need to cling to a biblical worldview. Ideas do not arise from the intellect alone. They are they they, they reflect our whole personality, our hopes and fears, our longings and regrets. People who follow a particular course of action are inevitably subject to intellectual pressure to find a rationale for it. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin. This means that sin affects our minds and our thinking process. The problems that we're dealing with all go back to sin, and we need divine intervention. And hear this. The church is actually unique in a place to fix the problem. You hear that? The church is unique in its place to fix the problem because Jesus is working in us. So we have the divine intervention needed. However, things will not be made right until Revelation 21 and 22 when Jesus restores all things. God stepped in to fix us. I want to read from Revelation 5, verses 12 through 15. Revelation 5, 12 through 15. Therefore, Jesus says, through one man, sin entered into the world. That's Adam. Through one man, sin entered into the world. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. He's saying that Adam is a type of him who is Jesus who who eventually came. Now listen to this. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, by the transgression of Adam, the many died, Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Jesus has restored or is restoring all things. Jesus is making all things right. We needed divine intervention. And God intervened through Jesus. And through Jesus, we can be redeemed and be saved and eventually restored and made right, which is going to happen in the future. I'm not going to take apart the passage today. My point is that only Jesus could fix the sin problem, and he did. Adam's sin was passed down through all the generations. And now Jesus has reset things, or at least is resetting things. We can be redeemed in Jesus, but the world still is not restored. We will get into that in a few weeks. So what is the problem? Sin. What is the solution? We need divine intervention. That's Jesus. Jesus changes us, and then we change society. Without Jesus, we have not repaired the heart. We have to be born again. You hear that? Without Jesus, we still have a fundamental heart problem. We need to be born again. And when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, also known as Nick at night, in John chapter 3, because Nicodemus came to him at night, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, Jesus said, you need to be born again. That means there was something wrong with the first birth. You know what was wrong? Sin. The first birth was to be born under the sin nature. So we need to be reborn by Jesus. Jesus changes us. By the way, it's interesting how Christian love uh, uh, confounds the atheist. Listen to this Christian love confounds the atheist. J.D. Greer writes this. He says, Years ago, I read a book about the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens. Famous atheist Christopher Hitchens. During the last years of his life, he toured university campuses, debating a Christian scholar named Larry Totten, the author of the book. Larry Totten described how very few of his intellectual rebuttals made any deep impression on Hitchens. No matter what Larry Totten responded with, with Christian apologetics, it did not affect Hitchens. But you know what did affect Hitchens? Larry Totten and his wife decided to adopt a little girl, a baby, who was born with HIV positive. They willingly chose, willingly chose to adopt a girl who they knew was HIV positive. Christopher Hitchens could not make sense of that. He could not make sense of it. Every time Larry Totten would see Christopher Hitchens, he would ask about that. And Larry Totten did not make the case that Christopher Hitchens accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior before he died. That would be great if he did. He didn't make that case, but he made the case that Christian love confounds the atheist. What arguments and what debates and what discussions and what reason and what intellectual rebuttals can't do, Christian love confounds the atheist. We need to cling to our Christian worldview. We need to test everything up against the Bible and realize that every day of your week, every minute of your day, Every time you're listening to something, watching something, reading something, taking part in a discussion, there is a worldview there. And we need to realize we need to hold true to the Christian worldview. We need to hold fast to the Christian worldview. Hold fast to the Christian worldview. And we need Jesus. We can't do it on our own. The world needs Jesus. Next week, we're going to continue talking about the effects of sin on the world. But my encouragement, my exhortation, my challenge for you today, test everything. Cling to the Bible, cling to the Christian worldview. And first and foremost, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered to him as your Lord and Savior? The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to Christ. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We're called to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. We've all sinned, you know, we've all sinned. We're all guilty. But we need to believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Have you believed that? We need to trust in him and commit to him. Have you done that? Have you confessed, believed, and put your trust in Jesus? If you haven't, I encourage you to do that today. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes for prayer. If you have not committed your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. You're not saved by the prayer. You're saved by what's in your heart. But the prayer is important is telling Jesus what you're doing. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in you as my Lord and Savior, and I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with somebody today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God wants a relationship with all of us. I'm going to invite the praise team up for the closing song and prayer.